Um, but before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the contents of it. And yet there are, there are passages in here that are hard, they're difficult. They're, uh, they're sometimes things that we try to avoid. We don't like to read. But Father, today help us to, to look at things that are difficult, things that are hard, and, and, and give us your spirit who gives us all wisdom and will bring us to a place of truth. Amen. Yeah, hard, hard times. In fact, this has got Chris so stewed up. He was thinking about running away this morning, but I caught him on his way out. Um, I found him the other day gazing at a carton of orange juice. I, I, he completely lost it, obviously. After about two minutes, I said, Chris, what are you doing? He said, well, on the carton, it says concentrate. <laughs> It's always nice to go first on these things. You can get your retaliation in beforehand. Um, So the story so far is the spies have been into the land. They've come back. There's a scarlet cord hanging in the wall of Jericho, probably on the north side. The ark of the Lord has come down through the river. The rivers have piled up on one side and the people have come through, a million plus of them. Six 100,000 fighting men. And they march into the land that they are calling theirs, and yet it's not theirs. This is still enemy territory. This is still a place that they have to gain. So these are the first tentative steps of an invading army. They haven't come home in that sense because it doesn't belong to them yet. They still have to fight. Now, when I was um, growing up, As a youngster, this story was told over and over and over again. And it was always one of my favorites because it was fairly gory. Everyone got slain at the end. Everyone got killed. And as a boy, that was really sort of, woo! That's fantastic, isn't it? You know, the good guys beat the bad guys. And that's, you know, as a boy, you couldn't get better than that. And also within that, you had this fantastic thing of walls coming down. You had this amazing story about this people who march round the city six times, once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they go around seven times and then they shout and ram's horns are blown. And there's all sorts of mayhem and the walls go. And the armies go in and they win the battle. And that would have been the story. Isn't God fantastic? Isn't he wonderful? That he can do these sort of miraculous things. Walls coming down. And of course, the good guys won. The good guys always win in the Bible, don't they? Until you start looking closely, they do. Um, so rather than sort of have a look at this and, uh, and sort of, you know, make it into some kind of um, romantic little thing, let, let's have a, a, a kind of closer look at it. And we discover that actually Moses said to the people, When you go into the land, when you go in, you take the cities and you destroy everything. Men, women, children, animals, livestock, anything that has a pulse, kill it dead. That's pretty awesome stuff, isn't it? Moses speaking on behalf of God. Joshua at this very first battle, gives the command. Everything dies. Nothing survives. 
When we go into that city, we wipe it out completely. This is the Bible. This is God's word. So how do we square that when we look at Jesus, who comes along and says, love your neighbor. Treat your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't seem to add up, does it? This God of the Old Testament and this fantastic God of the New Testament. And we love the God of the New Testament, don't we? Because he's wonderful and loving and kind and, and forgiving and brings us a nice rosy glow inside when we think of the New Testament God. But then we hop back to Joshua and we just think, ah, kill everything, even the donkeys. What have they done? It's just a little rough, isn't it? Now, we're not going to pretend that we have answers this morning, but we're going to give you a few kind of ideas of what people have thought and what people have said about these passages. And we're going to let you think about it. And if any of you want to come back to us, then Chris is the man to come back to. Okay? So, here we go. One of the, one of the things that happens here is that we get this whole idea of religious justification. We have the good guys and the bad guys. And, um, and we have these people going in and um, commentators would say that these people had to be wiped out because they were so evil. They weren't good people at all. Their practices weren't good. This is what one set of people would believe. God had to remove them like a cancer because if they were going to go in and take this land and become the people of God living in a land specifically for them, then they couldn't have these influences mingling in with them. They couldn't have these people changing something that's pure into something that's unpure. And in fact, they would go on to say that the children of Israel didn't carry out God's word. They didn't carry out God's hand because there were occasions when people didn't get completely annihilated and people weren't completely destroyed and those same people came back hundreds, maybe thousands of years later and corrupted the people of God and led them away from the God that they should have been worshipping. They brought back idols. They brought back things that were wrong. And so some people would say that God needed to cut this cancer out of the land. That there was something needed to make a complete fresh start. When you have new starts, you have to have a little bit of collateral damage. And so that's what some people say. Joshua and his army were completely justified in this because it was a necessary evil to start something else. These are awfully, well, I mean, I know you're thinking right now, there's a lot of danger in thinking these ways because as soon as you start to sanction genocide in any form, give it something that's a cause, then that obviously becomes really, really problematic. I want you to imagine just for a second that a dirty atomic bomb is set off in London. Al-Qaeda claim it as their own and they say, we Muslims have made a strike against the West and we've destroyed half of London. And they do it in the name of God. So then we in our country, predominantly Christian, the person on the street who would say, we're not Muslim, we're Christian, what do we think about that? Because we're not Muslim. So half of Bradford gets slaughtered because there are a lot of Muslims in Bradford. And we start taking revenge, don't we? Because actually God's on our side, isn't he? He's not on their side. 
You see how the problems come in. As soon as we start having a religious justification for something, especially genocide, it brings all kinds of problems. Chris. One of the things that we talked about um, right at the very beginning when we we began looking at this big story was um, interpreting the Bible. And uh, one of the first questions I think we have to ask when we open the pages of the Bible is what kind of literature are we reading? Because the Bible isn't a book, is it? It's a collection of books, 66 books, written at different times and in different cultures by different people um, over a long period of time. So sometimes you'll open a book and it'll be poetry. Another time you'll open a book and it'll be a letter that someone wrote. Very different. So one of the questions that we have to ask is what sort of literature are we reading? We're reading from a particular book today. Well, two books. One in which Moses spoke and one in which the battle is recorded. And when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, because the Old Testament that we've got is, um, is the same scriptures that, that Jewish people would use. The Old Testament. They would call it the Hebrew Scriptures. And when you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, this book comes not as history, because interestingly, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are no history books. None of them are called history. They're called the former prophets. This book is a prophetic It doesn't claim to be history. And as a prophetic book, as a different sort of literature, maybe a key to understanding this passage and these passages and these stories is that they are written for a different purpose. They're not written to record history. But they're they're written for meditation. They're written to to get a particular message across. They're written even for worship. They they have a liturgical purpose. And the central truth of what's recorded here is that God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, is holy. And that God and the covenant people must not be contaminated by the cultural corruption of the Canaanites. It is the sin that is emphasized, not the slaughter. It's how to deal with the things that might infiltrate and deter you from being devoted to God. And so the book has to be read in the light of what it is. Not history, not factual not, not details that, that, that are all to do with facts, but that convey a message. That's how some people say we need to look at these passages. Um, week in, week out, we've been saying that this, um, these events were in a different time and a different culture, one that we can't particularly understand. Um, you would have to be there in order to understand it, and that's never going to happen. 
um, to try and understand a culture from so many years ago, to try and understand a time and a place with so little evidence of that time, would be practically impossible. Um, And so these people who were going into this land were living in a time that we can't understand. We can't get a handle on it. We can't understand their thought processes because we weren't there. Um, So how does God deal with an ancient people? You could call them a barbaric people because of the things that were going on there. God's ongoing revelation of himself to people must fit the time and the circumstances in which they live. So here you have these people who are coming into a land and maybe God didn't say to them specifically, this is what you have to do. But in practical terms, maybe this is what they did have to do. Because they're going into a place where people wanted them dead. Nobody wanted the Hebrews coming into the land. They were all pretty fine. They all had split up and they were living in different areas of this place called Canaan. And they had their areas and there would be little battles between them now and again. Borders between tribes would have moved. And then here come the Hebrews. Huge quantity of people coming in. Who would want them alive? Who out of those people living in the land would say, Hey, come on in, refugees from Egypt. Come on, settle in this area. No one's going to do that. These Hebrews were public enemy number one as far as the locals were concerned. So therefore, they need to get in and stay in. I don't know if you've ever played Risk, the board game. It's, uh, it was one of my favorites. A few years ago, my brother, sister-in-law and I would play it every Sunday. How sad were we? Very sad is the answer. However, in Risk, it's kind of like a war game. Uh, and uh, you build up your armies, and then the idea is to get the complete board. You cover the board with your armies and wipe everyone else out. It's an interesting, gruesome little game, really. But what you discover as you go along is that if your army suddenly attacks everyone and goes, I got you, got that, got that, got that, got that, got that, got that, but doesn't quite make it, your army is so spread out and thin that the armies that are left just pile straight back into you and you're so weak and vulnerable you get wiped out. Ancient warfare was like that. If you left anyone back there to do any sort of trouble, they would come and get you. So in purely practical terms, these people who were an ancient barbaric people knew that they had to be ruthless. The other thing about Jericho is it sends a message to the rest of Cana. Don't mess with us. We wipe everything out, even the donkeys. And so this message gets sent ahead. And of course the effect on people as it goes ahead, they completely wipe Jericho out. No one was left. You know, we can't understand it from our point of view here today because we have the United Nations who lay down stipulations as to how warfare must be conducted. And yet, if we take a snapshot of last century, if someone from a few thousand years later look back on last century, they will see genocide, wars, terrible things happening, millions of innocent people slaughtered. They will look back at our generation, at our last century, and say, what a barbaric people. And yet, we have the United Nations setting up guidelines for the way we fight. 
How can we make judgments on a people way back then? How can we say they were wrong, we were right? So God deals with people in the place that they are. God deals with us in the place that we are. When people look back on us, maybe they'll say, you know, these people, they believed in God. They did all these things. And yet, these Judo-Christian countries of the West kept the rest of the world so down in such poverty so that they could maintain their own lifestyle. And we will be judged on the way that we behave. We will be looked back upon and people will say, and they did that in the name of God? They were Bible-believing, church-going. They did all those things, and yet they allowed these things to happen. God deals with us within our culture. God is still dealing with us today within our culture. Fortunately, with a gentle, loving hand. Maybe that's what was happening back then. God was dealing within a culture where things were necessary, where things had to be done. God was still God. God is still God today. It's clear that, um, that the Bible is... Um, Revelation and understanding of the Bible is an unfolding process. Uh, and I think in terms of, of understanding, it, it moves towards God's most complete revelation, who is Jesus. The person of Jesus, I think, is the most complete revelation that there is of God. And God is working within people within their historical and cultural circumstances and all the limitations that this presents, which is quite a challenge, as Al says. Maybe the ancient Hebrews thought that God was commanding them to carry out these acts of genocide. But they were mistaken. However, they recorded the stories to reflect that understanding. So the stories we have say that God told them to do this because that's how they thought it was. Maybe these stories were edited during the period of exile because in this big story that we're looking at there came a point later on than where we are now obviously where they get taken from the land that God has put them in and they get carted off they're in exile and during that period of exile they started to collate and collect a lot of the stories that we have written now in the pages of the Old Testament and one of the, the, the possible answers, one of the theories that we've read about is, is that some uh, people say that, that the biblical writers wrote as if God had commanded the genocide. Because the writers wished that Israel had acted like that. Because they were in such problems now. And maybe... If they had been more ruthless when they went into the land, and if they had destroyed the cities and killed everybody, if they'd done it that way, then maybe they wouldn't be in exile now. And so they rewrote history to give that particular perspective on it. 
Maybe if they had wiped out the Canaanites, Israel would not have fallen prey to the temptations and ended up in exile. Well, there are many, many theories. Did it happen? Is it history? Is it prophetic? Were they actually being used by God to destroy these people? Were they mistaken? Was it something that was written in a future age looking back and a particular angle was put on it? Was it to do with the the cultural and historical context? It was a brutal world and that was how it was. We're dealing with a text that's talking about something that happened possibly, you know, three and a half thousand years ago. It's very, very difficult to be definitive. But there's a verse in Genesis that I think sums it up for, for me. It's a great verse and it's, it's just a one line thing. And it says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And I think I come to the point in all of this when I read these texts and I think, well... There are a number of possibilities, a number of directions that we could go in. But at the end of the day, I trust that God, there's an act of faith, that I think God was at work somehow in all of this. And there comes a point of faith and trust, I think, that God is bigger than my questions and almost bigger than my ability to work out exactly what we've got here. And I guess we're each of us responsible for coming to peace in ourselves with with what this is about because it becomes something that's a huge challenge doesn't it that what is the bible recording here a loving faithful and true god who seems to be saying something very alien to so much else that we know him to be because throughout scripture when you take scripture as a whole there are wonderfully inspirational Teachings about shalom, about peace, about completeness, about healing, about well-being. And somehow this stuff doesn't sit in that context very comfortably for some of us. And so it's the process, the journey, I guess, of untangling it and saying, well, what could this be about? How can we understand this? And I do appreciate that it's a thorny issue. One that we've never attempted to deal with publicly. (laughs) For obvious reasons. But there's a passage just before we finish that I think might give a little bit of a clue here. Just before they go into Jericho. It's chapter 5 of Joshua. And, uh, And this is what it says. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. So he's holding a sword. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? 
And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then Jericho. Isn't it incredible? A little story there. The commander of the army of the Lord, some people say this was Jesus himself in an Old Testament uh, sense. And, and, and there are these theophanies, they're called, these appearances of God in the Old Testament. And others say one on it was, it was an angel, it was Gabriel or whatever. Uh, but it was clearly a dramatic moment. And I love that little exchange where it says, are you for us or our enemies? Neither. God is above our, it's me, it's my side, it's my opinion, it's what I'm fighting for. God is with me. No, 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 he's not. He's with me. He's on my side. Because God validates my way of looking at it and my opinion. And he says, I'm not for either of you. But I have now come. And I think there is something happening throughout history in the earth and even today, that is bigger than our perspectives, that is greater than our problems and questions and anxieties. It is the work of God. God is about what God is about. It isn't a question, I don't think, of us looking for ways in which we can justify our positions. He is so much bigger, so much totally other. Than us. This is the, the one who says that before all else began, I am. This is the one who appeared to Moses. This is the one who, when people stand before him, take off their shoes because this is holy ground, who can't even look. This is the God of the ages that we are endeavoring <laughs> To understand his workings and how they're recorded in scripture. With our incomplete understanding. And, and minds that have been shaped by western education systems. This is a God who is bigger than any of that stuff. So what is he about? There's a, I think there's a great verse in Ephesians. And, and I, I, we just wanted to... To, to suggest this, it, it's, it opens up a whole other lot of questions really. But In Ephesians, in, in chapter 1, it's in the New Testament and Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And, and it's chapter 1 and, and, uh, and he's writing and he's talking about a mystery that God has revealed. And he says... Um, God has made known to us the mystery of his will to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. And this is the mystery that was revealed. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The message puts it like this. God has a long-range plan in which everything will be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. 
God's long-range plan is Jesus. That is who this is all about. The complete universe will be brought together under one head, Jesus. I say it poses a series of other questions. Because I want to say, what does that mean? (laughs) What are the implications of that? What would that look like? Everything brought together under one head, Jesus. That's why I think Jesus is central. We didn't plan it, but Rich sang the song, Jesus, Be the Center. Absolutely. Because he's who it's all about. This is the plan that God has. This is why the Christian faith without Jesus is nothing. Church without Jesus is, is what? Faith without Jesus is what? Because God's plan is through Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is who it's all about. That's his plan. So when the commander of the army of the Lord appears before Joshua and he says, whose side are you on? And he says, neither, but I have now come. I think it points to something that God is at work in the world. God has a plan and a purpose throughout history. We appear for an infinitesimal moment of time and are gone. But God's purposes and God's plans are bigger and greater. And the amazing thing is that we get a chance of being caught up somehow in this phenomenal thing, that gift that God has given us called life. We get to play a part. We get to be on stage, as we talked about a few weeks ago, playing our part in this great drama. Act 5. We've read the previous four and here we are. We've got an idea of who this God is and what this is about, but there's no script. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, we say we want to live it. We want to live it well. We want to live it understanding that it's about Jesus. It's about everything being brought together under this one head. This is who it's about. It's not about whether God's for me or God's not for somebody else. It's about I want to be in the flow of God's purpose. I think faith opens our lives up rather than closes our lives down. Faith is about opening up possibilities. It's about living life as it was meant to be lived. As God designed us to live it. And I think that's an enormous challenge. Is God for us or God against us? Well, thankfully, he's for us. If God be for us, who can be against us, it says in Romans. But in terms of the battle, in terms of the struggle, in terms of, of, of how we view things, I think he's totally other. And it's amazing that we sit in this little room in West Cross trying to, to, to somehow make sense of some of the mysteries that are presented to us in Scripture. Which is a phenomenal book, isn't it? Al said this last week. As we've spent the last... Um, couple of months every now and again sitting and talking about some of these things I think for both of us we have felt more drawn towards this incredible person this 
God who we talk about. That we have felt more and more challenged and more intrigued by scripture. That we felt drawn in to this. Rather, than, I think the questions are incredible. Gary and I had a bit of an, uh, uh, um, an email conversation this week. And we were talking, I, I just read a piece. We were talking actually about, about uh, is it right to question God? And, and at what point do you, do you say, oh, well, you know, that's God. So who am I to question it? And, um, and I, I came across this thing that had been sent me by somebody else. And it was basically saying that, that, that actually to learn, you have to question. Teachers, don't, good teachers, don't say, take out your book. Write this down and don't ask questions. Put your hand down, shut up, just get this written down. We had a few teachers like that in our time, but I didn't learn an awful lot. But a good teacher will say, ask, question. To be faithful to the learning process, we need to ask. I, sorry, I, I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. What, what about this? What? And I like that because it's, it's the sense of engagement with all of this. But questions, and we have lots of questions, don't we? Questions about the Bible, about faith. That, that we need to be asking the questions and wrestling with them and discussing them together. And it's okay to not come up with an answer on which we all agree. Because maybe we're at different points in the journey anyway. And sometimes there aren't neat and tidy answers to some of these things. But let's not be afraid to ask God. God, I don't understand this. What is this about? Because if our faith is to have integrity about it, it needs to be a faith that we engage with. And we ask the big questions of this incredible God. As Al said, we sat the other day and thought, what shall we do on Sunday with the issue of genocide? We looked at each other and said, we could both be sick. And we could have a meal together on Saturday night and then be, have food poisoning and then say, say to Rich, could you handle it, Rich? And, and then Rich would have come up and said, genocide, what do you think? The ideas we're putting forth are ideas, are, are things that, ways that people have interpreted their possible angles to come at it from. But I think it's a, it's a difficult one. But shall not the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, do right? And my faith is in him. It's not in my ability to work it out, although... I'm wanting to ask the questions and be on the journey with him. And I think that's the great thing about church is that we journey together. And we talk and we discuss. And please come back to us if there are things you think, well, what, what about you know, ideas, you know, that, that emails and questions and discussions. And, because this is something that's important as we endeavor to live faithfully to what? This is all about. And remember, it is about Jesus ultimately. And that question, what does it look like to bring everything together under one head 
even Christ. That's an interesting one to discuss and to think about. What does that look like? What, what would the implications be for us? Let's stand together as we finish. If there's anybody who'd like to pray at this moment, uh, I'll just pause for a minute and pray from just where you are. And then I'll pray at the end. Yes, God, we offer our questions to you, not in an arrogant, inappropriate way, but in deep humility to say, God, we want to learn and understand and travel together with each other and with you on this journey of faith. Help us as we wrestle with, with these questions and, and with lots of other issues about life and Lord, we want to live with a sense of, of joy and a sense of, of, of you being in us and amongst us. Help us in this. Lead us into greater understanding. Open our eyes that we might see. And more than anything, that we might respond to the truth of who Jesus is. And follow him for all we're worth. Amen. Amen. We'll pass the baskets around as we finish. If you would like to give to the work of the church, please don't feel um, pressure to do that. But this is an opportunity to give. The fair trade shop is open. And come and chat if you need to.